0: We find ourselves about a week away from Tishabav. And we've mentioned on Tishabav probably a couple of times throughout the years the famous last speech of Rav Chonor Wasserman. He was standing with his disciples. And he was giving them chizik, he was he was uplifting them, giving them courage, teaching them how to die in the most dignified way, Alpikidish Hashem. And the one thing that he said to them, he said, You should know that our death will serve as a kapara, this will somehow be assisting our brothers and sisters in America. Now, how he knew that, how he was able to say that at the time, I don't know. But it it seems like there is this clear understanding that America would be the final frontier. We almost have words of prophecy going back to Reb Chaim Volozhin in the the early 1800s. Talking about America being the, the final place in Gullis, the final... Final area where Jews will live outside of Eretz Israel. and when he said that America was nothing, it was far from the uh, the establishment of the Jewish people. What I want to do tonight is focus on the American dream. We we live here, and those of us who have been here all of our lives, we view it as a given. This is reality. We knew that we know there are Jews elsewhere. And the truth is, the population of the Jewish people, 9 out of 10 Jews in the world, out of the 12 to 14 million of us, 9 out of 10 either live in America or in Israel. About 6 million here and 6 million there. That's pretty much the breakdown. We don't view America as one of the stopping points of the exile. This is just home. It's so natural. This is, you know, sports and, and media and whatever America is, whatever it represents, this is our reality. But just like every other place along the way, going back to England and Spain and Eastern Europe, Jews might have lived there for a few hundred years and they might have felt comfortable, but eventually we move on. And our next stopping place will be none other than Eret Yisrael, Amritz Hashem. But I want to just analyze what exactly is this Golis, this time period of the Jewish stay in America. Ramosha Feinstein writes in one of his essays in Achuva that Arzot HaBrit, the United States, Himalchus Shel Chesed, it's a country of kindness. Shekol matarasahu lehetev lechol Toshve America. The goal of the government is we are here for the people. We have a democratic society. We have the idea of election. And although we could complain and quetch and talk about all of the flaws of the American system, the basic goal is we the people. We want you to decide what's best for you and what you feel comfortable with. So it's a Medina Shel Chesed, or Moshe Feinstein writes this decades ago, and we have to have Hakar Satov, we have to have a deep sense of appreciation for religious freedom, for freedom of speech, for the ability to practice Judaism in an open way. These are things that our ancestors never dreamt of. So it's a Medina Shel Chesed, and we have a lot of Hakara There is a a Pew Research study, goes back to the beginning of 2017, where it looked into the difference between Jews living in America and Jews living in Israel. And although quantitatively we're about the same, qualitatively we'll find there's some major, very significant differences. On the whole, Jews living in America are warmly regarded as a religious minority in a very large Christian majority country. I'm not so sure about the warmly regarded. That's <laughs> a little bit of a stretch. Jews represent about 2% of the U.S. adult population of, rough, of roughly 300 million people. Only about one third of American Jews say either all or most of their close friends are Jewish. Only 5% say all, and 27% say most of their close friends are Jewish. A substantial proportion, which is 44% of U.S. Jews who are married, say their spouse is not Jewish. And anyone married after the year 2000, the majority of them will tell you their spouse is not Jewish. By contrast, Jews make up about 80% of Israel's adult population of 8 million people. The vast majority of Israeli Jews say that either all or most of their close friends are Jewish. 67% of Israeli Jews will tell you that all of their friends are Jewish. And nearly all married Jews in Israel have a Jewish spouse. In our survey dating back to 2013, one out of every five Americans said they do not identify with any religion. 20% 20% of American Jews, when, when asked the question, what religion do you identify with, the answer is nothing. Rabbi Shlomo Karabach, when well, he used to go onto the college campus and he wanted to, to meet the Jewish students and, and talk with them and inspire them, so he would say, I didn't want to ask, are you Jewish? So I just would, would approach people and ask them the question, What religion are you? I'm curious. And those who said Christian, I knew they were Christians. Those who said Muslim, I knew they were Muslims. Those who said, I don't have a religion, I knew they were Jewish. (laughs) So one out of every five Jews living in America will tell you, I'm not affiliated with any particular religion. In Israel, there's no such thing. I might be totally secular, but what's my religion? I'm a Jew. That's who I am. 98% of all Jewish Israelis will tell you their close friends are Jewish. 98% of all married Jewish Israelis are married to another Jew. So the numbers are staggering just looking at the present and looking at the future. Where American Jewry is and where Israeli Jewry is. Regarding our religious affiliation... So, in America, 18% of Jews will say they're part of the conservative movement. 35% will say they're part of the reform movement. In in Israel, only 2% will tell you they're part of the conservative movement, and 3% are affiliated with the reform movement. So, the reform of conservative movement, although they are huge here in America, and they represent the majority of Jews, in Israel, they don't really exist. When it comes to the political affiliation, what do you associate yourself with? Are you to the left, to the right? So in America, 49% of all Jews will tell you, we are liberal Jews, we're very much the left. Only 19% will identify themselves as conservative Jews, conservative politically, and 29 will be moderate. In Israel, only 8% of Jews will tell you, I'm to the far left, Well, 37% are to the right, and you have 55% who are right smack in the middle. So politically, we are very different, and our religious orientation as well is very different. Now, we know there are many secular Jews living in Israel. Almost about half of all Jews living in Israel will identify as chilonim, as secular Jews. And the majority of them say they never pray or go to synagogue. And 44% of all secular Jews will tell you they don't believe in God. However, nonetheless, Jewish rituals that are now deeply embedded in Israeli culture, most Jews, even secular Jews, participate in. So, for example, you have about 90% of all Jews living in Israel telling you that they attend the Passover Seder. How could you not? This is what we do. A few more numbers here that I want to try to analyze. What percentage of Jews in America will tell you they firmly believe in God? According to this particular study, 34%. In Israel, 50%. How many Jews in America will say we always light Shabbos candles Friday night? Hopefully Friday late afternoon before evening. (laughs) 23%, not even a quarter of all Jews in America light Shabbos candles. Even 23% to me is somewhat surprising. In Israel you have more than 50%, 56% of all Jews living there light Shabbos candles. This is what we do. 60% of all Jews living in Israel fast the entire day on Yom Kippur. Almost half the Jews living in Israel will tell you, we don't handle money on Shabbos. I might not keep Shabbos, it's an entirety, and I might not be aware of all the different halachos, but I don't handle money, I don't do business on Shabbos. Almost half the Jewish population. 63% of Israeli Jews have a kosher home. That's an amazing thing. In contrast, only 22% of American Jews. And I think this is the greatest difference that we find amongst Israeli and American Jews. Almost 60% of Americans will tell you proudly, of course I eat bacon. I'm not superstitious. Amongst Israelis, you'll only have 16% telling you that I eat pork. 93% of all Israelis will tell you they went to a Seder last year. 70% of Americans, not that bad either also went to a Seder. So we each have about six million of us, but clearly we're going in a very different direction. I did see that in this report they said the, the one area where it seems like the Israeli Jews are not as religious as American Jews is the amount of people that will tell you, I only go to synagogue a few times a year. You'll have a higher percentage of Americans saying that, than Israelis. But I have a theory why that's true. That's not a religious difference. That's a cultural difference. Go to a synagogue a few times a year, in America we embrace the idea it's not all or nothing. You come Rosh Hashanah, you come Yom Kippur, that's a good start. Israelis have a very different mentality. But we're in very different places going in very different directions. So although we feel at home in America We all have to have a sense of pachad, a sense of trepidation. Where are we going? What does the future hold for the Jewish American life? So if we identify ourselves as ultra-Orthodox, modern Orthodox, somewhere in the middle, so okay, we're a lot safer. But, But how many of those Jews are there in America? How many Jews in America identified themselves as orthodox? About 10%. So that means 90% of our brothers and sisters living here in this country of freedom and bliss, you have the pursuit of happiness. The vast majority of them don't really have Jewish friends. They're marrying a non-Jewish spouse. And therefore, by definition, they're entrenched in the American culture. So although it has not been a bloody gullis, it hasn't been a violent exile here in America, Baruch Hashem. But because we're so loved, because we're this warmly accepted minority, whatever warmly means, we're assimilating very quickly. We're warned against this in Pasha's Maasai. The Torah tells us that when we go into Eretz Canaan, to take over the land of Israel. We're given a directive <speaking in Hebrew> that you will clear out all of the inhabitants living there. <speaking> in <Hebrew> and you will destroy all of their statues, Veskolme <speaking> Masushehem <in Hebrew> and all of their molten images you will destroy, Veskol <speaking> Tashmidu. <in Hebrew> And you will cut down, you will demolish all of their altars. So go into their pagan temples and burn them. Sounds somewhat violent. Why do we have to do that? So we know that the, the Talmud Yerushalmi tells us that when we entered into Eretz Israel, we gave all the people living there three choices. Option number one is leave. Go find yourself a home elsewhere. This is our promised land. Option number two is, if you'd like to stay and reside here with us, you're allowed to do so, according to the Ramban at least. But you have to throw away your paganism and accept upon yourself the Zion mitzvahs b'nai noach, the seven universal laws of morality. That was option number two. But if you don't want to leave and you don't want to change your ways, then we will fight. And we will fight till the death. Those are the three options. Even if we're taking option number three, but why do we have to destroy their images once they're no longer here? So let the temple remain. Why we're we so violent? The Torah goes on to say, But if you don't dispose of everyone living there, They will remain stings in your eyes, and they will be like thorns in your sides, and they will cause you pain. They will harass you like needles in your eye. What a what an image. It makes you cringe, like needles in your eyes. What does that mean? The Ramban explains, <inaudible> that your eyes will be pierced, lahatos <inaudible> that you'll be misled by their culture, <inaudible> you won't see properly, you won't understand things the way they should be seen through the, through the Jewish lens and you will learn all of their disgusting ways, The and you will serve their gods. So don't think there's some kind of middle ground. Don't think you're going to go in there, we don't have to destroy everything, we don't have to push everybody out, we can make some kind of peace treaty. If you think that, you will be shooting yourself in the foot. You will not be able to exist here and have the proper Torah lifestyle because you will be influenced by their ways. Not just they're going to force you, but we are going to embrace their to'eva. We are going to run after the things they do that we used to feel are disgusting, but now it's accepted and we'll fight for it and we'll make sure that everyone's on board with this lifestyle. So it sounds like unless we're fighting, unless we really have our guard up, we don't really have a chance. But the Torah warns us many times against the practice of Ovi Adoni. And that was a particular type of pagan worship where people would sacrifice their children. They would take their firstborn son or daughter and they would lead them into the fire as a sacrifice to their gods. The Torah says when you get into Eretz Canaan and you see this taking place, don't emulate their ways, don't do that same thing. So take a step back for a moment. I might not be that religious. I might only keep a kosher home and I'm not kosher outside of my home. I might only fast in Yom Kippur. I might do nothing at all. But why does the Torah have to tell me, don't kill your children, Can you imagine the scene, right? The Jewish people get into the promised land and Mrs. Goldberg turns to her husband and says, Honey, look at that. They're they're barbecuing their children. Schleimi, come here. Come here. Little rascal. (laughs) Why would we be tempted to kill our kids? We're not crazy. We're not savages. We're not barbaric. The Torah is telling us that it's true. As soon as you see that for the first time, you're probably going to faint. You're going to feel disgusted by it. And the second time, it's also terrible. And the third time, I can't believe it's happening. And the fourth time, it's actually somewhat intriguing to see how far the kid gets in the hot fire before he burns to a crisp. And as time goes on, everyone else is doing it. All the cool people are doing it. Our neighbors, the Schwartzes, are now doing it. Something that could be so absurd, that it could be so unheard of, if everyone's doing it around us, the Torah is telling us in many places, you will be influenced and you will embrace that lifestyle. Culturally, when it comes to morality, when it comes to how to define humanity in every aspect of the word, you will be influenced by what everyone else is doing. So that's one challenge we have living in America. Over 50 years ago, Rabbi Elias was the great Rosh Hashiva in Philadelphia, together with Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky, and he had the opportunity to ask a question to Rabbi levinstein Levenstein. levinstein was visiting in America And Reh El was bothered by the fact that in his assessment, people in America in general, and the young men learning in yeshiva, he felt they were more depressed. They weren't as happy, they weren't as excited about life, in contrast to what he saw back in Europe. So his question was to Rav Cheskel, what's the difference? Why is it that American people seem to just be blah, And back in Europe, there was just much more gusto. There was more of a vibrancy. What's the difference? So Rechaskel said back without flinching. He says, I see two main unique challenges on the American scene. The first is the American dream. And the second is a lack of modesty. Those are the two main things that I assume leads to a lack of simcha. He explained what could be wrong with the American dream? Back in Europe things were not nearly as romantic as they make it sound You know everyone's living in the shtetl and it's just beautiful and you walk to the well to get the water and you're Singing on the way, and it's just one blissful experience. Europe was not easy and it was, it was miserable for hundreds of thousands of Jews. The shtetl life was not a, a beautiful existence by far. The one thing, though, that Europe had, you're born to a shoemaker. My father's a shoemaker, my grandfather was a shoemaker, I'm gonna be a shoemaker, this is who I am, that's it. I don't have hasogas, I don't have aspirations of, uh, you know what, maybe I'll run for Congress. This is who you are. This is my class. In America, because we're sold, we're we're indoctrinated with the idea, which happens to be true. If you work hard and you get the right education through perseverance and diligence, you could work your way up. Just because I was born in this downtown area of Chicago, I don't have to be stuck here my whole life. I could do things and I could accomplish and there's room to grow in the American society. But said Rabbi Cheskel, because there's room to grow, it's very, very difficult to feel any sense of satisfaction. There's always more I could do. There's always more I could be getting that I don't yet have. The greatest destructor of simcha, of joy and contentment, is the feeling of but I could have more. If it's within my reach, then I'm constantly having a sense of jealousy and envy. I think the, the beautiful example of this is the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra was one of the early commentators on the Chumash. And on the, the 10th of the Asirah Sedibros, the last of the 10 commandments of Losachmod, not to covet. And there's a whole halachic discussion what exactly that means. But the Ibn Ezra is bothered by the question, how could Hashem command me not to be jealous of what somebody else has? How is that humanly possible? I've wanted a new car now for years and years, and because of my husband's job, we just can't get a new car, and I'm stuck with this, and my neighbor to my left and to my right, they're all leasing beautiful things, Why can't I have that? How am I supposed to combat that? If chas v'shalom, someone's going through a time of of tsar, and there's there's medical issues, or there's real financial burdens, and I look around me, and people seem to be just fine, how do I not feel jealous of them? I would love to be in their situation. If they only recognized how fortunate they were that they didn't have to be dealing with all of this mishagas, and they could be complaining about the the, the price of meat at the grove. I wish I could be complaining about that right now. How is it possible not to be jealous? So Ibn Ezra says, I'll give you an analogy. If you have the the villager, he's living a life of poverty, doesn't have much going for him, doesn't have much of a future financially, he's doing his thing. And one day he sees the, the royal family walking through the village, And he gets a glimpse at the princess, and she happens to be very beautiful. Okay. Says the Ibn Ezra, how much of a jealousy is this guy going to have that I can't be married to her? It's not fair. It's not fair. I wish my wife could have that kind of fancy jewelry and all the things that the princess is accustomed to. Why is it that most sane people, that's what he writes, why is it that most sane people it's not going to really eat them up because they view themselves on an entirely different plane. Not that you're better and that I'm worse, but you're in a different league. You're in a different universe. You do your thing, I do my thing. Says the Ibn Ezra, the only way that we could combat jealousy or envy is by realizing that that's true with everything we see. If a Kadosh Baruch Hu gave me this particular family, this particular home, this particular job, and someone else has something that I wish I had to remind myself, I have nothing, that's for him, that's what Hashem gave him, this is what Hashem gave me. But the, the challenge of the American scene is you could always have more, and therefore it's that much more difficult to have a sense of satisfaction. And the second thing that Rabbi Cheskel said was a lack of modesty. And this is going back to probably the 1960s. The 1960s were definitely, it was a decade of, of revolution and a lot of change from even 10-15 years prior, but it wasn't 2018. A very different world. But Rucheskel was able to, to understand the, the, the human nature and realize that because the lack of modesty is not just accepted, but it's promoted. And we use it to sell anything and everything. And we try to exploit the animal within you. So that also leads to feelings of never being complacent. Never having enough. Because I'm constantly told from all directions, I could have more. And I should have more. And there are only a few people in the world that look the way We want them to. And everyone else isn't quite there, but we all want to be there. So it's a society where we're never satisfied because we could always be going higher and getting more. And it's a society promoting something that is not only hashchasa, destruction for the neshama, but it's something I can never get enough and never get enough of. Of course you're not going to be happy living in America. I think the majority of times when you find people who have lost themselves. And, and the sad reality is it's, it's not just in the secular world, it's in the Jewish world, and it's in from society. And it's not just, I'm not gonna name any places, but it's not just in those areas. It's everywhere you turn. There's a total lack of commitment. There's a total lack of fidelity. There's a total lack of loyalty in every area of life. And it's not just because we're exposed to so much and there's so much access. It's also because within the American culture, there's a sense of arrogance that's also promoted, a feeling of entitlement. We deserve more. I should have more. That is the greatest danger when it comes to taiva, when it comes to area of desire, the more Gaiva one has, the more I feel I'm deserving, the more that I should be getting, the more my, my hunger is or my thirst is never quenched. I'm always looking for more. There's a beautiful Midrashic source that I think really describes this culture. It shares a story of a man who doesn't describe the setting, but he's schmoozing with a lady and he says to her, and she's not his wife, makom "Where are you going?" Sounds like that was a way of, of "Let's meet up." So this lady was smart. "Me what did she do? Halcha ishto." She went right away to this guy's wife, and she told him. ishto, makom So what ended up happening was his actual wife, went to that place, and he was together with her, not even realizing it was his wife. After he realized that he, he's, he's, he, he's such harata, such regret, he wanted to kill himself. He couldn't live with himself anymore. So his wife said to him, you should know that I saved you from a terrible, terrible thing. You were together with me. But then she gave him good musr. And she said to him, Why did you go so crazy? Why did you have entertained doing something like this? <speaking in Hebrew> it's because you're arrogant. It's because you feel you're deserving of so much. Arrogance breeds, brings desire to a, to a, to a league that never... Quenches the thirst of the taiva. Now, if you actually define what the American dream is, the, the philosophy is that freedom includes the opportunity for both prosperity and success, as well as an upward social mobility for the family and children, achieved through hard work in a, in a society with few barriers. In the words of James Adams in 1931, He wrote, life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability and achievement. So again, this is a bracha. You can't look a blessing in the face and say, ah, this is making us miserable. Baruch Hashem, we have upward mobility. But to realize it's the the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, said Rabbi Yechezka Levenstein, that could actually be holding me back from really being happy. Now, Baruch Hashem, we know that the American community is, is growing in a way where there are more yeshivas, there are more shuls, there are more kolalim. And there's a lot more learning and there's a lot more davening taking place. However, of Moshe Mordechai Epstein, he was the great head of the yeshiva in Slobodka. He defined American Jews as follows And I think it's perhaps more true nowadays He said American Jews know how to make Kiddush But they don't know how to make Havdalah What does that mean? <laughs> so Kiddush is to sanctify To, to daven, to learn, to, to bar Hashem Promote Jewish life But Havdalah literally means separation We're not so good at making Havdalah so we become more and more from, more and more religious, and a lot of that is, is, is beautiful, but we keep on taking in the American culture around us, and it subtly seeps in and has a very strong impact on, on our whole Torah life as well. Here's the good news, though. Up until this point, it's been kind of negative. <laughs> but here's the good news. The good news is that Amir Tashem very soon will all move back to Eretz Israel. The Bias Hagoel. And even before Mashiach, for some people, it might be the right move right here and now. Always something to consider. But even for the time that we're here in America, the good news is, is that we do have control over the bias, we do have influence in our own home. And within our own home, that's really what creates the child. There's a a beautiful episode in Megillus Rus, where Rus is there picking in the field of Boaz, and Boaz is walking and he's seeing all the people working for him, and he notices there's something unique, there's something special about Rus. What did he pick up on? Her modesty, her chachmah. She had a sense of wisdom. She was humble. So we had the question, where is she from? Where did she learn this from? And the answer given to Boaz was, Rab Sariftala. Her mother-in-law, right? Nami, she taught her. She taught her how to be a Tsnua, how to live with modesty and integrity and dignity. Now Rus we know was from Moab. Moab was known for total hefkerus, no lines, no no barriers. The very inception of the nation was based on a lack of modesty. She was born and raised in that culture, but because she had the role model and the tutelage of someone like Anami, she was able to outshine even the other Jewish girls. She was in a whole different league. So a lot of what happens in the bias in the home can make the difference in the children and in ourselves. The one caveat is, though, it has to be a bias. It has to be a home. Once we allow everything from outside to come inside, we no longer have the protection, the security, and the the, the sanctity of the Jewish home. i share with you a story. I remember reading this years ago. Rabbi Kellerman who's known for his work in in, um, children development, child development. So he told a story that he was on some kind of road trip in Israel with the family, and he told all the kids to make sure to go to the bathroom before we get in the car. I think they were taking a bus. And they all went to the bathroom. They're on the bus now. And his little boy, Hillel, five minutes into the bus ride, starts saying, Abba! Abba, I have to go to the bathroom. Are you serious? We have like 40 minutes until the destination It's not going to stop. Abba, I can't hold it in. And they try to distract him. And finally, they they made it to their destination. By this time, Hillel is is barely able to stand or walk. They get him off the bus. And they're trying to find a place to go to the bathroom. Now, in their family, they never called Hillel by his real name. They always referred to him as Tzadik. Little righteous one. Come here, tzaddikl. So they call them tzaddik. So they're looking for a place for little tzaddikl to go to the bathroom. Eventually the only thing they could find is a little bar. So the father runs in, Rabbi Kellerman, and says, do you have a restroom for my son? He really has to go. He says, sure. Hillel walks right to the door and he sees that it's a bar. And he looks at his father and says, I can't go in here. No, it's okay, you got to go to the bathroom. But, but I'm a tzaddik. Now, when you have to go to the bathroom, I think it's okay. <laughs> but, but I think the message was, if I constantly hear that I have kedusha, there's sanctity to me, to feel a sense of asherenu, matov chalkeinu, we feel fortunate that we're part of the, 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 the Jewish people, we're part of the mission, and there are certain things that I will not participate in. Not that we have to walk around looking down at people. That's not our approach at all. We respect every human being. We might not agree with certain ways of life and philosophies. We respect all and we look down at none. But it doesn't mean that I'm participating in certain things. He said, I can't walk into the bar, I'm at The what and the when and the how we teach That's all very, very subjective, but we have to instill within ourselves and within our children, within our communities, there's a kedusha, there's a sanctity. We have to cherish that, we have to feel proud, and we have to take pleasure in that. I just came back from a trip to Chicago. I was there for two days at a a Gurdas Yisrael convention for, for rabbis across the Midwest. So you might be wondering, what were you doing there? We're not really part of the Midwest. And I got that question from many people. So the main answer was, I was encouraged to come by a friend of mine. And, but listen, it was a nice nice opportunity. You meet a lot of people. You hear some, some great personalities sharing words of wisdom. So one of the speakers they had was Rabbi Noach Isaac Orlbach. He's one of the, one of the well-known Rabbanim in Queens. And he told the uh, story about the Ritvaz. The Ritvaz actually spent some time in Chicago, Rav Yaakov David Olovsky. and um, he eventually moved to Eretz Yisrael. But uh, I think towards the end of his life, he, uh, he gave a drasha, where he was trying to inspire the crowd, and he was trying to explain that the way it was back in Europe cannot be the way it is nowadays. He wasn't focusing on America, he was saying in general, it's a new generation, we need a whole different approach. But he was explaining that back in Europe there is something called a mitzvah yid, which means a Jew who does mitzvot. I'm not like really engaged, I'm not learning every day, but, but I do what I have to do. I keep Shabbos, I keep kosher, I do I do what I have to do. So we quoted the verse in Mishlei, Kiner mitzvah, the Torah or. That the mitzvah is compared to a candle and the Torah is compared to an ore, to more of like a blazing fire. What's the difference between a candle and a fire? So a candle, if it's inside the house and the windows are closed and the doors are closed and it has the proper oxygen, it continues to burn and everything's okay. Once you open the window and some of those, though the wind comes in, or someone comes in through the door, that flame will be extinguished. When it comes to an ash, an ash is the exact opposite. If you open the door and allow some of the wind to come in, if the whole house is on fire and now there's a gust of wind, what happens? It only enhances and expands the fire. So the Ravaz says as follows. He said, back in the olden days, we lived in an enclosed home. The doors and the windows were shut. We could be near mitzvah. We could just do our mitzvahs, have a little bit of that light, and we'd still be secure and protected. Nowadays, we live with the windows and the doors wide open. And for the better or the worse, that's the reality of life. For sure, in America and even in Israel, That's what we dive in every day of Neh Yerushalayim. You should rebuild Yerushalayim to what Yerushalayim could and should be. It's not there yet. Nowadays, you can't suffice with being a mitzvah Jew. You need to have the Torah. You have to be engaged. That way you have that raging fire. And as long as we keep ourselves on track, some of those winds might not harm us. They might actually make us stronger. They might embolden us. One of my favorite stories I forget the source of this, but I've seen it in a couple different places that someone went to his grandfather's sukkah and he saw that part of the sukkah decorations were not just little fruit and lights but there were all of these pink pieces of paper hanging from the schach So he asked his grandfather, what are these things? And his grandfather said very proudly, this is going back to the 1930s He said, every time I don't come in on Saturday And then I come in on Monday, I get the same little pink piece of paper telling me I'm no longer needed for this job. And I'm told that if you can't come in Saturday, don't bother coming in Monday. And what I do with those pink pieces of paper is I bring it home and I put it in my sukkah box. And on sukkahs, I hang it up for decoration. I'm proud of every single one of these papers. So although we try to avoid the blowing of the wind, sometimes we can't, but we can't let it extinguish the flame. We have to realize America is not going to last forever as the Jewish homeland. The question is when, but in the meantime, what we have to be aware of is the American dream is a beautiful bracha that we should never look down upon, but it's also a tremendous challenge of always wanting more and never feeling satisfied, and the lack of modesty and the promotion of, of a totally immoral way of life does seep in. We have to shelter ourselves as much as possible. We can't physically break down the altars of of the culture, but we have to close our doors. But even when the wind does seep in to remember, if it's just the ner mitzvah, we have no chance. If we're strengthening the idea within the home, it's coming from the bias, and it's a real bias that's secluded as much as possible, and we're teaching what it means, the dignity and the honor and the, the opportunity, what it means to be a Jew, a Torah Jew, that even when the wind does blow, that fire gets bigger and greater and more radiant. A good Shabbos.